Heavenly Father, right now we ask that once again you would just breathe upon us. God, in this moment, we make the conscious decision to put to one side the worries, the concerns, the stuff in our minds and within our hearts. And God, we ask right now that you would help us to become fixed upon your face, that you would allow us to hear from your heart, and you would allow us to see that which you wish to reveal to us today as a church, but also as individuals. We invite you to speak to us right now. And we pray, God, that you would minister to our hearts and to our lives in the way that only you can. And God, we pray that as we journey through your word, Lord, we would come to the same conclusion as is our starting point, even more so, that you are so lovely and you are so worthy and you are so wonderful in all of your ways. So come and have your way in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to jump in our Bibles back into the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to Luke chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 38, just a few verses together. Luke 4, verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each of them, he healed them. This moment is one that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. And for obvious reasons, we draw from the gospel of Luke. Over the past 12 months or so, we've been dipping in and out, on and off, into the gospel of Luke as part of our confidence series, and we've come as far as chapter four, so we're doing really well. (laughs) And we kind of jump back into that a little bit, because this is the passage, in some senses, that we arrive at today. And while we draw from Luke, we also do dip in and out of Matthew and Mark to help us build the bigger picture of what's going on. Now, the opening statement sees Jesus leaving the synagogue and journeying to the home of Simon, or as we would know him, Peter. And this is a phrase that we focus in on for a little bit. It is such a simple statement, and it is such a simple journey. We read it almost matter of fact. But there is something quite important in this statement. Jesus left the synagogue and he went to the home of one of his disciples. Now Mark's gospel presents it to us in a little bit more detail. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Mark paints a wider picture. For Mark, what is important for us to know is that it's not just Jesus that has left the synagogue, but they left the synagogue, and they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And the obvious question that arises is, well, who are the they? Who are the they that travel from the synagogue to Simon Peter's house? And the obvious answer that we come to is that it's, well, it's Jesus and his disciples. 
In the order of the Gospels, both Matthew and Mark present that prior to this event, Simon and Andrew, James and John have just been called to follow Jesus and to be his disciples. And it's interesting then that those who are mentioned by name in the text are those who have already begun a journey of discipleship with Jesus. And specifically, look at the journey that is recorded in this passage that they are taking. They leave the synagogue and they travel to Simon's home. Now Luke positions this in his gospel as a journey that Jesus makes, whereas Mark positions this as a journey that the disciples are making alongside Jesus. And what makes this interesting and the reason that we focus on it is because Jesus has left the place and position of worship and he's journeyed to the place and the position of fellowship. I don't know about you and I've said this before, I'm not really a big fan of the word fellowship. It's a cheesy word that we've come to use in churches to describe moments of social intercourse. Come and have fellowship with us. We've had a lovely time of fellowship together. Let's spend some time in fellowship. We've come to use the word fellowship as a Christian-y way of saying, let's hang out together. But the dictionary definition of the term fellowship actually opens it up quite considerably. It lists fellowship as this. It's companionship and friendliness. It's participation, sharing, a community of interest. It's communion. That's what the dictionary describes it as, communion. Now when we begin to piece this into the passage that we're looking at, two things come out of it. And the first is that we're told that Jesus transitions from a place of worship to a place of fellowship. He left the synagogue and he went to Simon's house. Now, as custom would reveal to us, it was the tradition following the synagogue that there was always the Sabbath meal. And the Sabbath meal was a time to eat, to rest, and to relax. And what is interesting is that Jesus is presented to us in this passage as one who occupied the place of worship and spiritual formation. And he's also one who occupied the place of friendship, communion rest, relaxation. And this is important for us because often when we think of encountering Jesus and when we think about finding the spaces that he occupies in our minds, as soon as we think of the spaces that he occupies, we instantly think of moments of worship and moments of teaching and times of doing church. That's the spaces that God occupies. That's the place of encounter. But yet we are presented in the gospels here that Jesus was as much committed to rest and relaxation. He was as much committed to friendship and community as he was to worship and spiritual formation. In fact, he occupied both of those spaces. It wasn't one or the other. It was both. The space of doing church, as we would refer to it, and also the space of friendship. And the second thing that we recognize from this passage is that Jesus did both of these things with his disciples. The disciples experienced a connection with Jesus in the moment of organized worship and scriptural teaching and they experienced a connection with him in the moments of rest and relaxation of friendship and community. In fact, Jesus journeyed with both of them or with them into both of these settings. He journeyed with the disciples into these settings and even as we say that he journeyed with the disciples, we have to caveat that because when we read through the life of Jesus, one thing is perfectly clear. He's the leader of the pack. He led the disciples. 
He led the disciples that he journeyed with. He set the course. He dictated the journey. And that's not a surprise to us because Jesus didn't invite them to be his disciples by saying, come, let me follow you. But instead he said, come, follow me. In other words, he says, follow my lead. So our understanding of Jesus and his disciples is that his function and their movement is very much dictated and directed by Jesus. The journey that they're on is one that is navigated by him. He selects the membership of their group. He sets the tone of their group. He literally sets the direction of the group. So if they're in the synagogue, they're there because he's led them there. If they turn up at someone's house for food or they're reclining in someone's living room or they've turned up at a random wedding, it's because he has led them into that environment. And if that's a rule that we can all get on board with, then we begin to understand the significance that there is in this opening sentence. The journey from the synagogue to the fellowship was not just one made by Jesus and his disciples, but it was one led by Jesus And it was therefore made in the company of Jesus. It's a journey that he instigated and it's a journey that he inhabited. It was a journey that he led his disciples on. So therefore it is a discipleship journey. And here is a phrase that we talk about quite a bit in church. And in fact, it's a phrase that we are beginning to use quite a bit in Glasgow Elam. We want to carve out a discipleship journey, a discipleship pathway. One in which we grow in our faith, are transformed in the process to become more like Jesus. One in which we are empowered as a community as well as individuals to seek God, to share faith and to serve others. And here in these simple actions of Jesus, we get a beautiful glimpse of a discipleship journey and a picture of what it looks like. We could give a complex definition, but we give quite a simplistic one. Discipleship. It's all about building around and gathering around the spaces and moments that Jesus inhabits. And that means that it involves a commitment to gathered moments like this one that we're in this morning when we gather around organized worship and we gather around scriptural teaching and preaching and and times of ministry. But it also involves a commitment to rest and relaxation outside the gathered moment. Now by that I don't mean that we all go home, kick off the slippers and grab the pipe, but rather What I mean is that we find rest and refreshing growth and encouragement through friendships, through eating together, by participating in common interests, by sharing in common unity. Discipleship takes place in the house of God, but it also takes place in the homes of one another. In actual fact, take location out of it. Discipleship takes place in the presence of God and it also takes place in the presence of friends. Look at this moment. Jesus travels with those that he's called to be his closest companions. He goes to their house to eat. He meets their mother-in-law. It's only people you're really close to that you unleash the mother-in-law upon. He meets... The mother-in-law, he eats with them. He is concerned about what they're concerned about. Their worries, their issues become his worries and his issues. This whole situation reeks of friendship. It speaks of pals. It speaks of real proper mates doing life together. And of course, the whole reason that we have this passage and the whole reason it's recorded for us is because this is the context of a miracle. 
What we're reading, what we're spending time focusing on today is in fact the detail that reveals the setting of the miraculous. The gospel writers tell us this information, they set the scene for us here, they share this information because this is what we need to know that leads to and results in a miracle taking place within this home. We can't help but call out then, framing that within all that we've just said, that it's significant that the miraculous didn't take place on this occasion inside the synagogue, but rather it took place as the result of Jesus journeying to Simon's home. The miracle took place as the result of a journey from the place of worship to the place of fellowship. It was the journey of discipleship that unlocked the miraculous. Discipleship, that is when we commit to find Jesus in gathered moments of worship and also commit to connecting with him through moments of friendship and moments of fellowship. Discipleship unlocks the miraculous. And to be precise, it's actually not about the miracle. When we commit to journey from the place of worship to the place of fellowship, that's when the ministry of Jesus begins to invade the moments of life. When we make the discipleship journey more than just a Sunday thing, but an everyday thing. When we commit to connecting with him in moments of friendship and encouragement, that's when the life of Jesus begins to invade the everyday. And that really challenges us to think then, what is our discipleship pathway? What is your discipleship pathway? And let's be clear, you're in charge of your discipleship journey. The church is called to facilitate that, but we're not in charge of it. You're in charge of your own discipleship journey. So how are we actively walking and living as disciples? If our entire discipleship structure revolves purely around gathered moments of worship and teaching, then our growth will be stinted and our potential will be limited. But if we connect, or if we commit to connect with them in moments of common unity, moments of friendship, moments of fellowship with one another, well, that's when we begin to find God breathing into those moments. That's when his life is found. We see that here in this passage. As we press on from the opening verse, there's a couple of interesting dynamics that begins to come out. And the first really important one that we see is that Jesus broke custom. Jewish custom, as we've already said, was that the Sabbath meal took place immediately after the synagogue, a bit like going home from church to a Sunday roast, another tradition that God instituted at the beginning of time. (laughs) The synagogue meal was, a bit like the Sunday roast, a sacred tradition within Jewish custom. And actually what made it sacred was that it was a time of rest. Synagogue happened, you ate the Sabbath meal, rest. Jesus broke the custom here to respond to need. He interrupted the order of the day. And here is where we begin to see a dynamic of Jesus. Jesus was in the habit, and still is, of interrupting the order of the day to manifest his kingdom. He sat down at a well once with a woman and engaged in a conversation with her. That was a social taboo for a man, for a rabbi no less, to be alone at a well with a woman, a woman of ill repute. She's had hundreds of husbands. 
And not only that, but she's a Samaritan woman. Jews hanging out with Samaritans was a huge no-no, but a Jewish rabbi hanging out with a Samaritan woman with loose morals on his own, that is a massive no. That was against all the order of the day and the custom, but he broke that custom to speak acceptance, to communicate love, to bring rebuke and correction, but in a very kind way, and to deliver revelation to her. He broke the order of the day and the kingdom was manifest. He touched a leper. To be in proximity to a leper or to touch a leper was to become ceremonially unclean. Touching a leper resulted in exclusion from the synagogue and from temple life. And Jesus broke the custom and he broke the order and he not only touched the leper and made him clean and whole, but he touched him and then went to the synagogue and the temple anyway. He was in the habit of interrupting the order of the day to manifest the kingdom. And we could go on and on and on. He showed affection and approval of the town prostitute and her display of affection and worship. He wrote in the sand as he dropped a truth bomb into the hearts of religious leaders who were condemning an adulterous woman and being for her blood. He called a teeny tiny tax collector out of a tree and said to the vertically challenged man that he was inviting himself to his gaff for tea. He turned water into wine bringing the most exquisite wine to the, the wedding table at the end of the celebrations when normally it was brought at the beginning. He walked on top of water. He called storms to be silent. He even called a dead guy out of a tomb once. Jesus had this habit of interrupting the order of things with the manifestation of the kingdom. Heck, he was born of a virgin. From the beginning, he was interrupting the natural order of stuff. And here's the truth. We tend to find Jesus in his kingdom when we're willing to take a stand. When we're willing to raise our voices and speak loudly but yet speak kindly and serve in such a way that it interrupts the order of things and releases hope. God is in the business of rewriting stories and he calls us to do the same. You know, one of the passages of scripture that impacted me so massively is Isaiah 58 where these prophetic words are listed. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth at the dawn and healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. God speaks to his people in Isaiah 58, a profoundly powerful passage. And he says this to his people. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Now, we don't have time to delve into the depths of fasting this morning. But in its incredibly simple sense, we understand fasting is this. We fast 
to gain the attention of God in its crudest, most simplistic sense. God speaks to his people in Isaiah then and he says this, here's how you get my attention. Feed the hungry. Clothe the poor. Shelter the homeless. Loose the chains of injustice. Set the captive free. Be agents of freedom. Bring freedom to souls and experiences of other people. Stand up and address injustices with what you have and with who you are. Serve the hopeless and the addicted, the broken and the afflicted. Spend yourself on behalf of others. And then God says, and if you do this, here's what's going to happen. Light will push back the darkness. Healing will begin to manifest. Glory will begin to be found and experienced. You will call and I will answer. I'll begin to turn up and I'll begin to manifest my reality. The prophetic call of Isaiah announces what happens when we gain the attention of God through what has been listed. And look at what it describes to us. Breakthrough in prayer. Manifestations of glory. Visitations of God. Healings. Deliverance. I don't know about you, but I've been around church long enough to know that's what we call for and that's what we pray for. That's revival right there. This is a very move of God, a very habitation of God that is described to us in response to actions and approaches. And I find it amazing that these things are not unleashed according to the prophet Isaiah in relation to 24-7 prayer. God doesn't say, is this not this, the kind of fasting I've chosen, set up 24-7 prayer rooms. And there's nothing wrong with that. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's unleashed as a result of prophetic utterances of declaration and binding and loosing. Nor in relation to states of holiness and piety. And don't get me wrong, all of these things have their place. But that which is listed as manifestations of the kingdom and with similar language to what Jesus uses when he describes the dynamics of his kingdom, taking the scroll of Isaiah and reading from it in the synagogue. That which is described as the ministry of Jesus and the manifestation of the kingdom is found when God's people begin to interrupt the order of the day and begin to rewrite the story of lives and of families and of communities and of nations with hope. I can't help but be challenged by this. We've called and we've called and we've prayed and we prayed. Release healing for this. Bring breakthrough in this. Visit us with this. Bring revival. Could it be that we need to break out of our spiritual bubble? And that actually, if we want to see the manifestation of his heart, we need to start touching what's on his heart. The broken. The wounded. The afflicted. We come and we have our spiritual parties. And we come and we seek and we pray. And outside, people struggle. People face hardship. But we're having our spiritual parties, so we're okay. God is most supernaturally present when his people begin to alter the stories of life with hope. When we begin to feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, clothe the poor, 
when we reach out to the broken and support the oppressed, when we bring hope to the hopeless, when we interrupt the order of the day and function in the opposite spirit, that's when we begin to find the manifestation of his kingdom. We need to be that kind of church, right? We need to explore that. This discipleship journey in Luke 15, or Luke 4, sorry, was a a journey from gathered worship to fellowship, and it was one that saw the kingdom manifest when the order of the day was interrupted. Journey towards discipleship is one that involves us taking responsibility for the environments that we find ourselves in and committing to interrupt the order of the day, to take ownership of social environments around us and begin to rewrite the story around us with the very heart of God and the hope that is found within it. True discipleship happens when the impact of gathered worship is outworked as we journey towards the place of fellowship. It's found in the day-to-day outworking between the moments of church and the connection of small group. It's when we begin to live the truth of these connection moments in our every single day lives and every single day moments. Jesus interrupted the time of rest to respond to need. Now, the opening sentence not just calls out to us a journey that was made, but it also presents to us a contrast that existed. Jesus and his disciples were at synagogue. Simon was at synagogue. He was at church. And he was engaging in the organized activity of worship and spiritual formation. He was quite literally in the actual presence of Jesus in worship and teaching. But while he was doing that, at home, all was not well. Simon was one of Jesus' disciples. He'd given up his everything to follow Jesus. He'd surrendered his everything for ministry. He's walking and talking with Jesus in a place of intimacy. He is one of his closest companions, but even though he's close to him, there's still a crisis at home. Surrendering to Jesus Engaging your everything in the task and the journey of discipleship does not make us exempt from hardship and difficulty. Following Christ does not make us exempt from crisis. Simon was at synagogue where everything was well, but at home, everything was far from well. His mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. In Greek medicine, it didn't, that didn't just mean that she had a high temperature. Greek medicine, that was a term that actually meant she was severely ill. Now, both Mark and Luke in their accounts tell us that the disciples bring the mother-in-law situation to Jesus. We've all done that, right? (laughs) Joke. I have a great mother-in-law, if you're listening. Mark's version has the disciples telling Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law's condition. Luke's account has the disciples asking Jesus to help her. So according to the two Gospels, they told Jesus about her and they asked Jesus to help her. They told him what was happening in their home. They brought the needs of their current context to Jesus and if they spoke to Jesus about her when she couldn't speak to him herself, then by technical terms, they interceded for her. And here is a phenomenal picture. They journeyed from the synagogue to their home And their first avenue of ministry, the first environment for ministry outside the gathered moment, was their own home. 
their first intercessory action as disciples. And if you read the order of the Gospels, this is their first ever intercessory action. Their first ever intercessory action wasn't to beseech Jesus for the lost sheep of Israel. It wasn't to ask him to bind and loose the Roman government and overturn the policies of a ruling authority for whom they did not vote. They didn't clasp his feet and cry and wail out for the salvation of the Pharisees and travail over the lack of true theology that existed within the places of worship in their nation. No, their first intercessory action as disciples was to talk to Jesus about their home. They chatted to him and they told him all about what was going on in their house and they asked him for his help. The primary arena of ministry is our home. And the primary area of intercessory responsibility is our home. And we can take that definition further. When there is a contrast between life in the gathered moments of God's people and life outside of that, it's time to start talking to Jesus. When there is a difference and a contrast between what's going on when we gather in moments like this and what goes on outside moments like this, that is a sign that we need to start spending time talking to Christ. Our primary responsibility in prayer is to bring the needs of our current context to Jesus. And that's not a self-indulgent thing. We have to look at the context that God puts us within, the work context he's positioned us within, the wider family context that he plants us within, the friendship and relationship context that he blesses us with, the community context such as our neighbours and our neighbourhoods and our churches. We need to look at those contexts that we are positioned within because he places us within such environments to be intercessors for those environments. We need to speak to him about the current context of our lives. Oh, but you don't understand. Right now, I'm laying hold of him to come against the spirit of witchcraft. Oh, but right now, I'm interceding against the spirits at work over the nation of Scotland. Right now, I'm coming against the principalities over our government. Okay, what if we shelved all of that stuff and just started chatting to him about the current context that you're put within? That could be where we actually see the most profound impact. What if we started chatting to him about our own individual context and just ask them for help? See, you are planted as you in those contexts because he's planted you there and he wants you to talk to him about those moments. What is your prayer list? What is your prayer agenda? Look at your surroundings and just chat to him about what's going on round about you and ask him for his help. Walk into moments and look round about and just talk to him about what's going on in those moments and ask him to help in those moments because by asking him to help, we're inviting him into our circumstances and he always responds to invitation. What I love about this small passage of scripture is that it takes place very early on in Jesus' disciples' journey with him. In both Matthew and Mark, the disciples have just been called to follow Jesus. In Luke's gospel, he's just about to call them, but in Matthew and Mark, they've just laid down their nets to follow him. So these guys haven't really been hanging around with Jesus for long. But even though they haven't been hanging around with him for long, in this situation, they instinctively ask him for help. Mark 1 says this, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever 
And they immediately told Jesus about her. They haven't been following Jesus for long, but immediately their instinct is to turn to him for help. It strikes me then that beginning a journey of discipleship is not just about connecting with him in gathered moments of worship and the gathered moments of fellowship, but it's also about living a life that is marked by instinctive intercession. It's about living a lifestyle of prayer. And not just moments where we gather in circle for prayer and do the prayer ping pong thing. Not just a moment of quieting the soul in prayer for the purpose of devotion, valuable as all of those things truly are. But actually it's about living each day as one continuous open conversation with God in which the thoughts and the inner dialogue of the soul is an open channel and an open communication line to heaven that in every moment and every situation that we walk into, our instinct is to talk to Jesus about what's going on and ask him for some help. However, there is a challenge further. The disciples journey with Jesus into this situation and they are close enough to Jesus to facilitate his action within the crisis. Here is the true call of discipleship. It's to walk and live in relationship with Jesus in such a way that it means that in every, into every situation we walk, we carry his presence and we're close enough to him to facilitate his action. It's true discipleship. Walking close enough to Jesus. Coming to the gathered moments, committing to meeting one another, encouraging one another, building one another, going deep into his word, praying, spending time in his presence, living a life of instinctive intercession and being close to him that in any situation we can facilitate the presence of Jesus within that moment and his function and activity. Very early on in ministry, a guy that became a hero for me was a man called Dennis Phillips. I don't know if any of you know him. He's an Elam pastor that was nicknamed the Holy Spirit man because very often in moments of ministry, the Holy Spirit came so incredibly close. And as a young pastor in training, he said to me, as you begin in ministry, Fraser, I have one bit of advice for you. And my advice is this, get close enough to Jesus that when you ask him to come, he turns up. That's all you need. And he's right. He says, when you walk into a hospital room and you visit someone in their hospital bed, if you're close enough to him, you ask him to come and he turns up in that moment, that's all you need to do. Ministry will take place. When someone comes into your office in a, in a trial and a difficulty and a, a difficult situation, you don't know what to do. If you're close enough to him that you ask him to come and he turns up in the room, his ministry can accomplish more than your counsel or advice ever could. When you're leading a church, if you're close enough, you ask him to come and he turns up, then he can pastor and he can lead. Here's the mark of true discipleship. It's been close enough to him that it doesn't matter what environment we walk into, we can actually facilitate his activity. We can bring, be, and do his ministry. We can see his presence invade. Jesus responds to the invitation that is before him. He interrupts the order of the day and he interrupts the time of rest to respond to need. And of course, we see from this that Jesus is one that never rests. Isaiah 40 says that God never gets tired or weary. 
Psalm 121 says he neither slumbers nor sleeps, which means there's never a time when he's not available and there's never a time when he's not willing to respond to need. We can be anywhere at any time and we can call and speak to him and know that we will always have his full attention. And the disciples discovered this. On the Sabbath, during the Sabbath meal, they asked Jesus to help. And he interrupted the order of the day to help and look at what he did. It says in Luke's gospel, we should read Luke 4, 39, he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. In Mark's gospel, he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. We see, as we bring this into land, three very quick things from these verses about intercession and living a life of instinctive intercession and the effects of that. The first thing is this. Jesus moved towards Peter's mother-in-law. She couldn't come towards him. She couldn't change her position to get closer to him, but he moved towards her. In fact, he bent over her. The inference in the text is that he bent down to her. He came closer to her. The disciples ask Jesus to help Simon's mother-in-law. They intercede for her. And the first thing that happened as a result is that Jesus came closer to the woman. Intercession moves a person closer to Christ. When we begin to intercede for someone, when we bring that person or that circumstance before the throne of Jesus, we brought that person closer to Christ. We begin to facilitate in that moment of prayer the presence and the activity of Jesus within that moment. The second thing that Jesus did was that he rebuked the fever. We read the description as she was suffering from a high fever. The literal translation from the Greek is that she was in the grip of a high fever. To be in a grip is to be stuck. To be in a grip is to be trapped. Simon's mother-in-law was trapped within her circumstances. The disciples bring the situation to Jesus. They intercede for her. And as a result, he rebuked the fever. He exercised authority over that which had authority or a grip over her. Intercession is about releasing the authority of Jesus within a life, within a circumstance, or within a situation. When we talk to Jesus about our context and we ask him to help we actually release and bring the authority of Jesus within that context. We submit the situation to his power for him to bring change. In intercession, we place him in charge. The bigger challenge is to learn to leave him in charge, isn't it? In intercession, we bring the situation, we submit it to him and we invite him to be in charge. We're just sometimes quite good at picking it back up again and going to fix it. We need to let him be in charge. The third thing that we see Jesus doing in response to that intercession is that he took her by the hand and he helped her up. And if you're to picture this happening, he brought the woman into his grip. Intercession is about moving someone from the grip of crisis to the grip of Christ. It's when we put a person or a situation in his hands and in his grip. 
journey of discipleship is one in which we take ownership for the environments and the context he's placed us within and we begin to exist in those environments in a position where our instinct is intercession. It's when we pray and act in such a way that we facilitate the presence and the function of Jesus. We begin to release the authority of Jesus within those moments and we begin to bring the situations and the people within them into the grip of Jesus Christ. True discipleship involves instinctive intercession. It's when we walk through every day talking to him about the context around us, moving people and situations closer to him, releasing the authority of Jesus and bringing people and moments into his grip. We need to start living as instinctive intercessors. Jesus manifests his power in this moment in the home of Simon. He heals his mother-in-law and the text says this, she got up and began to wait on them. It's brilliant. I love the fact that the passage doesn't say she arose from her miracle and began a preaching tour. Nor does it say she arose from her miracle and became a YouTube sensation. (laughs) Or she immediately went to the synagogue and demanded the mic so that she could tell everyone her story. Or she arose from her miracle and wrote her best-selling book, became mother-in-law ministries and crowned herself as an apostle to the nations. She arose from the miracle and began to serve Jesus Christ. Jesus served her needs. She now in turn begins to serve him. And in response to her miracle, the disciples don't quiz her. What was it like? How did it feel? What was going on in your spirit when that took place? What are the steps that we can take to replicate what has happened to you in our ministry? No, actually what dominated that moment was that she got up and served Jesus. She stewarded her miracle. We need to learn in our churches to steward the miraculous and steward the blessings of God. And the stewardship of the miracle didn't see her serving her own empire or ego, but instead it saw her serving the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. A life of discipleship is one that will constantly and continually spotlight Jesus. It's one that takes the blessings of God not as a badge of honor or a demand for a platform, but as a means of service. In discipleship, we take the gifts, the ministries, the anointings, the provision, the blessings that he's given to us, and we turn them around in an act of service to him. We use them to serve him. We use them to serve his glory and his kingdom. The woman served Jesus. She waited upon him. She welcomed him. She facilitated his presence within that moment. And as a result, Mark tells us this. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases, drove out demons. It is significant that the whole town gathered at the door of the house where the woman waited upon Jesus Christ. When we begin to function as true disciples, when we begin to steward the blessing of God for his glory, he begins to use the setting of our service as a platform to minister to others. Not everyone gathered outside that door would have known the story of the woman inside the house, but they didn't need to. Not everyone in that crowd would have known the service of the woman inside the house. They didn't need to. Not everyone would have known what had happened just previous to them turning up outside the house, 
But everyone did experience the Jesus whose presence the woman had facilitated with her service. Not everyone will know the story of what you've been through. They don't have to. Not everyone will see and recognize your service. They don't have to. But if everyone sees and experiences Jesus and his power, then that is enough. And we are being true, genuine disciples. True discipleship always platforms and spotlights Jesus Christ. We need to look and ask ourselves, what is our discipleship journey? What is the discipleship pathway that we're on? How are we living and existing and functioning as genuine disciples of Jesus? The discipleship journey set out for us here is seen in that Jesus journeyed with his disciples from the synagogue to his disciples' house. He journeyed from the position of worship and spiritual formation to the position of fellowship. Church, we need to be people that commit to gathering in moments like this. Finding I'm connecting with him in moments of organized worship and teaching and preaching. But we also need to be those that commit to journeying to the place of fellowship of doing life one with the other, encouraging one another, sharing common interests, communing with one another, finding him in those moments together as we cheer one another on and support one another to seek God and share faith and serve others. If our whole discipleship journey and pathway is linked to this moment on a Sunday morning alone, then our growth will be stinted and our potential will be limited. But if we commit to seeking God, sharing faith, serving others together, to adding to the commitment to gathering around his presence, a commitment to gathering in fellowship, then in that moment, we will find him breathing upon us. We will find the life of Jesus invading the everyday when we seek to be people that walk into moments and instinctively just talk to him about the context that we're in and ask him for help. I'm blown away and it's really caused me to come back to assess my heart again of the simplicity of intercession. Jesus, here's what's going on in this situation. Would you help? It's so simple. Would you come and help in this moment? When we live in every moment with the inner dialogue of the heart and the soul is just an open channel to heaven, just constantly inviting him into the circumstances, asking him to help. The profundity of what happens, we move people and circumstances closer to him. We release his authority. We see people being moved from the grip of crisis to the grip of Christ. When we begin to Steward our blessing, the gifts and the anointings, not for badges of honor so that people can see who we are and what we've got, but so it creates a platform for Him. Kingdom happens. When we stand up and say, what we see happening around us just will not do, we're going to change that order. 
we're going to interrupt that story. We're going to see Jesus rewrite it with hope in my family's life, in my work colleagues' lives, in my community, in my church, in my city, in my nation. I'm going to lay hold of him and ask him to rewrite the story with hope. Church, we need to step into a place of instinctive